You know, it's so important as we are talking about missions to remember the role of the Spirit because it's really the Spirit who is empowering us and working through us, giving us the words to speak as we share the gospel. It's also the Spirit who's convicting others of their sin and it's the Spirit who's drawing them. And so let's not forget the role that the Spirit plays when we're talking about reaching the lost. But what we're talking about today is really a movement that began 2,000 years ago And it's a movement that we join in with other people, people from all around the world who are trying to finish the task. And our speaker today, Doug Cobb, is gonna be sharing just what it's gonna take in order for us to finish the task. But before uh, he does that, we wanna give some more context to this movement and this mission. And so let's watch this video together. The Book of Acts portrays the Holy Spirit sparking a revolution of faith through a few simple followers of Jesus. This kindled a wildfire that rapidly spread beyond borders of language, ethnicity, and geography. What was the fuel for this raging fire? Obedient disciples empowered with simple strategies helping each other to do their part in the Great Commission. Beginning with their personal relationships, the fire soon consumed their cities and their regions. Believers continued making disciples who in turn made more disciples, leading towards generational movements of disciple making. And God still moves in this way today. In fact, history shows he never stopped. From Patrick's teams in Ireland to the Moravians, the Methodists, and the Naga of India, God has inspired his people to disciple small, multiplying churches that rapidly reproduce into growing church networks. Over the last two decades, God has blessed the world with an explosion of disciple-making movements. These movements keep emerging as disciple-makers train others and form relational webs across the globe filled with effective movement catalysts. A few known movements in the year 1995 have swelled to over 1,350 in the year 2020, using movement strategies drawn from the New Testament. Today, over 1% of the world's population has come to know Christ in one of these movements. Inspired by Christ's command in Matthew 24, 14 to preach the gospel to all peoples, we are a global community that is collaborating to catalyze, multiply, and support church planting movements. Though only God can start a movement, we strategically focus on urgently multiplying disciples in every people, group, and place, from our local neighborhoods to the farthest reaches of the planet. Our 2414 community prays and works together with urgent sacrifice until the Great Commission is finished. If God uses us to multiply movements together, finishing the task is possible in our generation. Good evening. My name is Doug Cobb. I live in Louisville, Kentucky, so I'm a long way from home tonight. It's great to be here with you here in Modesto. This is my first time in Modesto. Thank you for your warm hospitality. I just, I'd stay for the weather. It's a lot colder than this back home already. Uh, and I get to talk to you tonight about my favorite subject in the whole world, finishing the task, how our generation can be the one that will see this work completed. I, my, my career has been in business uh, as an entrepreneur and a, an angel investor. Uh, but about 10 years ago, 
God began to call me into some new things, specifically around this thing we're gonna talk about here tonight, working with a ministry called Finishing the Task and another one called the Issachar Initiative. That led me uh, about three years ago to start a ministry called the Finishing Fund. We'll talk about that a little more during the course of my talk, but the fund is a partnership of folks who've come together and pooled our resources, and we're using our resources to send missionaries for the first time to the last few people groups on earth who have never heard the gospel. Uh, I'm persuaded that we can finish that job in the next two or three years by God's grace. I'm always careful to say that because it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Um, But this is what I've really given my life to, and I uh, I can't wait to tell you a little bit more about this. Now, in the book of Habakkuk, chapter one, God speaks to the prophet, And he says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Now that prophecy when it was first issued was a warning to the people of Judah that God was about to raise up the Babylonians to come and bring judgment on them. It was a very severe warning. But like a lot of biblical prophecy, uh, this one has multiple uh, fulfillments And I think it's just as relevant to our day today as it was several thousand years ago when it was given to the Jews. God is doing amazing things today among the nations. We live in the most exciting and the most important time since Jesus walked the earth. Uh, I think the era in which the Great Commission is going to be uh, completed. We're gonna talk about that in a minute, but before we do that, let's talk about this word nations that um, Habakkuk was given there, the nations. We hear that word nation, and we think of a country. We think of China or Germany or the United States. We think of a a country, but that's not what the Bible means when it talks about a nation. In the New Testament, the word that's translated nation is the Greek word ethnos, E-T-H-N-O-S, ethnos. And you can probably guess just from hearing that word what it it means, because we have words that are based on that word. It means a a people group, a group of people who share a common ethnicity, language, heritage, ancestry, culture uh, around the world. In the Old Testament, the word is goi, G-O-Y. You may have heard that word somewhere along the way if you have a Yiddish-speaking friend. It means Gentile, but it's also translated as nations. And it has the same meaning, a a people group um, uh, that shares a language and a culture. Now, The Bible, the the scholars who study these things tell us that there are about 12,000 of these ethnos in the world, these people groups. Can you imagine 12,000 different people groups scattered all around the world? And they're not in one place. They are literally scattered everywhere. Some countries uh, have only a handful. Some countries have a whole bunch. Um, In the country of Nigeria, where I've been many times, there are more than 400, probably 430 or 40 different people groups in that one country about the size of Texas. India has a similar number, maybe more. Indonesia has a similar number. So many countries are filled with these uh, these people people groups. Um, Now, um, it's worth asking, we know the answer to this from the Bible, Where did all these ethnos come from? Where did these nations come from? And the answer is, we know, God created them at Babel. We read that story in Genesis chapter 11. 
It says in verse five of that chapter, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. This is why it was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. Now up to this point, if you read chapter, uh, verse one of that chapter 11, you hear that all of the people in the earths had a common language and they were unified as one ethnos, one people group. But here at Babel, God in his wisdom divided them and created these ethnos, these nations that are now scattered around the world. He did that for a couple of reasons. One is he'd commanded them to fill the world, but instead of doing that, they'd stayed all together in one place and he wanted them to do what he told them to do. So he created these divisions so they would need to spread out. He also did that to protect us because imagine the power for evil if only one nation existed and an evil person came to rule that nation. Imagine a Hitler without a Roosevelt and a Churchill to oppose him. So by dividing the nations, God actually protected the world from the potential of evil uh, that people can, uh, can accomplish. You know, one thing you can be sure of when God does something, he does it really well. So he didn't just create a couple of dozen of these nations or a couple of hundred of them, but 12,000 or more scattered all around the world. Now, what's interesting is even though it's God who scattered the nations, it has always been his plan to draw them back together and to bless them. And we find that promise all throughout God's word. We're gonna do a really quick survey here. We're gonna look at a number of of passages, but I just really want you to catch this idea that God's promise to the nations is found all throughout his word. If, you, if we begin in Genesis chapter 22, this is God speaking to Abraham just after Abraham has been willing to sacrifice Isaac. You know the story, he's willing to do it, but God provides the ram so he doesn't have to. A beautiful story, a beautiful picture of what God's gonna do for all of us through his son later. And he gives him these promises after he does that. He says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies uh, and, your and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, when you read that and you see through your offspring, you know who that's talking about, right? That's talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who humanly was a many, many, many generations later descendant of Abraham and through whom God has promised to bless all the nations. So there it is in Genesis. And then we flip all the way over to the book of Revelation at the other end of the Bible. But in Revelation seven, John has this vision. And here's what he says. He says, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language uh, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So at the very end, uh, when John has this vision, he sees men and women from every one of these ethnos, every one of these people groups from around the world standing and worshiping uh, God. So we see it at the beginning, we see it at the end, those are the bookends, but then it's everywhere in between as well. Let's just take a look at a uh, quick look at some of these. So here's Psalm 20. Two, it says, and all the families of the nations will bow down before the Lord. And here's Psalm 72. All nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. And 
him in that passage? That would be Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then let's look at Psalm 86. It says, all the nations you have made will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. And then in Psalm 117, it says, praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. So there it is. That's just a handful of the examples in the Psalms, but there it is four times in the Psalms. Let's flip over to the prophets. Isaiah chapter 49 says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those in Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Again, in that passage, when you see you there, that's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And what God's saying is, you're not, I'm not sending you just to save the Jews. I'm sending you to be a light to every nation on the earth. And in, in Isaiah 66, we say, I'm about to come and gather the people of all nations and all languages, and they will see my glory. It's in Daniel chapter seven. It says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and the peoples of every language worshiped him. And it's in Malachi chapter one. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. And then the last example we'll look at is in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. This is after Peter has gone to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile man, has baptized that family, and now he's back in Jerusalem explaining why he's done this outrageous thing, why he actually offered baptism to Gentiles. And he says there, then Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now, as I was going through those verses, did, any, did you notice a word or two that kept being repeated over and over again? We heard the word nations over and over, but there were another couple of words that you should have seen a bunch of times. What'd you hear? Anybody? How about bless? Good. How about all and every? Did you hear that? Almost every one of those verses that we looked at, the promise was made to all nations or to every nation. God hasn't just promised that his blessings would be for some nations or most nations, but he's offered them to every nation, every one of the 12,000 nations on the face of the earth, God has promised, has extended his promise to. And I wanna make sure we understand what this promise is. This is the promise of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. God has promised that that good news that there's eternal life in his son will be available to every one of the 12,000 ethnos around uh, the world. It's an astounding, amazing promise. Now, it's interesting that even though God originally divided the nations like we saw at Babel, his plan has always been to bring them back together in Jesus Christ. We see this most explicitly in Ephesians chapter two. And this is a little bit of a you know, a little bit of a difficult passage to follow. So just read along with me and then I'll try to explain to you what I think this means. It says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. 
His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put an end to their hostility. Let me explain what this is about. So that church in Ephesus was a church like many of the New Testament churches that had a a cultural divide in it. There were Jewish background believers and Gentile background believers in this church. And neither of those groups historically really liked each other very much. They didn't get along. The Jews looked down on the Gentiles. The Gentiles thought the Jews were kind of weird. And they were, here they were in one church worshiping together. And so Paul is writing to explain to them how in Christ, God has taken the two of them and made them one. And in that one body of Christ, his plan is to reconcile both of them to God the Father by destroying anything that would be between them, any dividing wall of hostility. Well, that promise that Paul saw being fulfilled in the church in Ephesus doesn't just apply to Jews and Gentiles. That promise applies to every one of these 12,000 people groups around the world. God's plan is to unify all 12,000 of those into the body of Christ and to make us one in in that body of, of Christ. Now, if you, if you think about it a little bit, that's a pretty amazing thing to claim to do. I mean, for one thing, there's 12,000 of them, right? How is God going to accomplish that to unify all of those together, right? It's a, it's a God-sized job to try to accomplish that. But if you've traveled much around the world, you know that wherever you go, you find out that people don't like the other very much. You know, we see this in our country. We're divided racially and culturally. It's a big issue right now, but we're not the only place on earth where this happens. Everywhere in the world that you go, you find that people of one group either hate or fear often the members of another group. And in some places, it's actually far more intense and bitter than it is here in the U.S. But what God is promising in his word is that he's gonna put an end to all of that one day. When we're together in heaven, I think we will continue to have our differences. We'll have our different you know, cultures and heritages. You know, we, I suspect our skins will be different color. God made us that way. He loves that diversity. But all of that will no longer separate us. Instead, it will be a source of glory for God that he has brought this amazing creation together in his son, Jesus Christ. Last thing I think about that gathering the nations is, you know, he's going to show that his victory is complete. Before God picked Abraham and began to fulfill his promises to the Israelites, every nation on the earth was under the dominion of darkness. That's what the Bible teaches, that Satan was the king of this world and all nations were under his control. But God has begun with the Israelites and then one by one he's added to that to begin to rescue all of these ethnos from the dominion of darkness to bring them into the kingdom of his son. And when he's done, the scoreboard is going to be 12,000 to nothing. There won't be one place on earth where Jesus Christ is not honored and glorified by disciples. It's an amazing thing. I, I love the fact that we have a God who calls his shots. You know, He tells us he's gonna do something extreme and outrageous and then he sets about to make it happen. By the, world, by the way, there's one interesting thing just to note about this. The, the world is always working on ways to try to fulfill this idea of unification apart from God. It's really the impulse that lies behind all world empires. It's you know, what Napoleon wanted to do to Europe or Hitler wanted to do 
in Europe. We see it today in the sort of the one world movement that is, you know, that we hear about in our, in our day, kind of to create a counterfeit version of this. One day, eventually that actually will happen. The Bible says that, you know, at the very last days, the world will be unified under this leader of the Antichrist. There will be one world government apart from God. But fortunately, it promises that will only last a very short time. And then that will be swept away and replaced by the authentic kingdom uh, of God. Now, we heard earlier about Matthew chapter 28. Uh, go and make disciples of all nations. This is the command that Jesus gave his disciples at the very end of his time here on earth. Go and make disciples of all nations. And I hope you see now, uh, if you didn't before, the deep biblical roots of this command. This isn't something that Jesus just decided kind of on the spot would be a good thing to command his church to do. What he was actually doing is he was commanding them to begin to make true the promises that God had already offered all through his word. So he set them out on this test. They had no idea what he had assigned them to do, right? They didn't even know that the Western hemisphere existed. I'm not sure they knew about China and Japan, but they set out faithfully to begin working on that, uh, on that effort. Now the church has been working on this for 2000 years and an amazing amount of progress has been made. We read about it beginning in the book of Acts, right? First it's uh, Jerusalem and then Philip goes to the Samaritans and then Cornelius we talked about and then there's a church at Antioch and then Paul goes to Greece and Asia Minor and Europe and the church begins to spread. People groups begin to be added to the, to the kingdom uh, of God. Um, and, you know, a lot has been accomplished. In fact, out of 12,000 people groups on the earth, Today, we can say with confidence that there are followers of Jesus in more than 11,500 of them. Think about that. So, you know, that's 11,500 divided by 12,000. That's a pretty big percentage. We're getting really close to seeing this, this completed. But even still today, there are still a few hundred people groups scattered all around the world that no one has ever been to with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Literally, no one has ever believed in Jesus in these places. There's never been a church in these places. It's been utter spiritual darkness in these places for all history. Nobody has ever followed Jesus in any of these places. Now, as you might expect, the ones that are left are left for a reason, right? They're the hard ones. They're the small ones. They're the ones that are in the corners and at the edges. Most of them are high up in mountains or way out in the desert or deep in a jungle somewhere. They've always been the ones that people said, well, we'll get to them next year, right? It's been, been the ones that it's been easy. Some of them are very hostile. Many of them are Muslim uh, groups. And so, you know, it's been a challenge to get to those last few. But in the last couple of decades, an amazing amount of progress has been made. We're getting so close to finishing this task. When my mentor, Paul Eshelman, started the ministry finishing the task in 2005, there were 3,500 people groups on earth in this category of being unengaged with the gospel that nobody had ever been to. 3,500, more than 70 million people in those people groups never heard the name of Jesus. But now just 15 years later, like I told you, we're down to just a few hundred groups that have not heard from 3,500 down to just a few hundred in just 15 years. It's an amazing thing. Now here's why, I mean, there's a number of reasons why this has been 
happening. You know, one thing is technology. You know, we have airplanes and automobiles and motorbikes and the internet and t- radio and TV. So all of that has helped get the, the word out to places um, that have never heard before. You heard uh, about church planting or disciple making movements. That's a a technique, a process of engagement that has proven to be very effective. So there've been improvements kind of in the, in the way we do this that have helped a a ton to get the, the word out. Um, a big part of the change in the last few years has been the rise of the local church in countries around the world as a force in this effort. So when you think of a missionary, you probably have pictures, maybe have pictures on your refrigerator of people that you know who grew up here in this church or in town here and have gone overseas. That's how missions used to be done. It's still very important, very honorable work, very, very critical that Americans are willing to go. But more and more, in fact, almost exclusively today, the workers, the missionaries who are doing these last few groups are people from the countries where these groups reside. So it's not an American going to a people group in India, it's an Indian who knows Jesus, who's going there, or a Laotian going to a Laotian group, or a Chinese going, a believer going to a Chinese people group. And if you, if you think about it just for a second, you'll recognize, well, that's way more efficient and effective, right? The, the cultural barriers those people have to cross are so much lower, and they don't have to fly across an ocean. They just have to drive a couple hundred kilometers across their country to get this done. It has been an amazing breakthrough. But by far, the most important um, factor in this is the movement of the Holy Spirit that is taking place around uh, the world. He is working in places where until recently, Jesus' name had never been declared to gather in a great end times harvest. He's working amazingly in places. You know, we've all heard stories of missionaries in the old days who would go to a place give their whole life in that place and maybe at the end of that time have two or three converts, you know, that would be their, their disciples. You know, that's a lot of time for not much. Those, those early missionaries were really breaking hard, rocky soil. But today, often the ministries that we support through the finishing fund, amazingly, often we'll see, often we'll see the first believer in a new place on the very first day the missionaries are in that place or if not that, within the first week or two of being there. And that can't be explained by anything other than the Holy Spirit already have been in that place working to prepare the hearts and minds of those he's chosen to receive his good, uh, his good news. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. Sometimes I think the Holy Spirit's sitting there tapping his foot saying, where are you guys? I'm ready. You know, come on. We're, everything's needed. All we need is somebody to come here and tell them about, uh, you know, this good, this good news. Let me tell you one story about a people group that's been engaged. Um, the Finishing Fund helped pay for this. Uh, a great ministry called Engaging Nations did the work. Um, I, I'm gonna change the name of the people group because it, it would be dangerous for them if the word got out, but uh, you'll be able to follow the story. So this is a story of a people group called the Grige people. They live way up in the mountains of a small Central Asian country. And until three years ago, nobody had ever been to them with the gospel. As far as anybody knows, There had never been a single Grige believer in Jesus Christ. But about three years ago, a group of believers in the capital city of that country were encouraged by some American missionaries to take responsibility for taking the gospel 
to the Grish people. These people themselves had only been followers of Jesus for a couple of years. They were brand new Christians. But when they got that challenge, they said, yes, we'll do that. We'll be the one. So they began to pray and prepare for that. Very difficult to get to these people. Very treacherous mountain road. You can only go there in the summertime. But they began to pray and prepare. And finally, the day came and they headed out to get this, to, to go to the first Grish village. And They've been praying right out of Luke chapter 10, Lord, will you show us a person of peace when we get to this place? So as they're driving into the village, getting close, they see a man walking by the side of the road. He's got his cow and a new calf that just given birth. He's in a good mood. He's feeling great. They pull over and stop. They introduce themselves, engage in conversation. Uh, he, um, they begin, since they've come to share the gospel, they say, well, can we tell you some good news? And they start to tell him about Jesus Christ and he begins to weep uncontrollably right there by the side of the road. And he explains to them, I've been carrying this tremendous burden of guilt and shame and no one in my village has been able to tell me what to do with this. Nobody's been able to tell me how to find relief from this oppression. So they tell him about Jesus. They tell him the good news that Jesus is the only one who can take away our guilt and shame, that he has paid the price for that. And right there on the spot beside that uh, on the side of that road, he becomes the first Grige believer in the history of the world. He says, you've got to come to my house and tell my family. They go do that. All of his family is now believers. In fact, his house has now become the first church in that place. And that small church of 10 or 15 believers is now reaching out to the other four villages of the Grige people to take the good news to them as well. Isn't that an amazing story? It's so cool. But... I want you to understand that, that while that's just one story, that is happening hundreds of times a year right now around the world. In a place where nobody's ever been a follower of Jesus, suddenly there is the first Jesus follower. We're getting so close to the end. Now, there's a couple more things I'd like to say about this before we wrap up. One is, Jesus, in, chapter, uh, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, Jesus' disciples ask him a question. Here's the official version of it. It says, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? That's the translation. Here's my paraphrase of that. When are you coming back? And he begins to answer that question. You can read it through Matthew 24. It's where we get a lot of the prophecies we know about the end times, you know, famines and earthquakes and apostasy in the church, those things. But then in verse 14, Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So the disciples asked Jesus a question, when are you coming back? And his answer to that question is, I'm coming back when you've taken the gospel to every nation. So you've heard me, oh, by the way, do you notice it by the way, there again, all nations? He didn't say all but a few. He said, when you've taken it to all of them, right? Now, as I've said, I think we're only a handful of years away from seeing that goal achieved, from seeing disciples in literally every ethnos, every one of the 12,000 on the face of the earth. And is it possible that we are living in the days of the Lord's return? Well, I mean, that's above my pay grade, but I'm just telling you what he said. He, he said, I'll come back when you have finished uh, the task. Once we've crossed that finish line, once we can say with confidence that there are disciples in every nation, then the door will be open for the first time in history, in my opinion, to the return of Christ. Um, Jesus said, 
that the gospel you know, would be preached to the whole world and he wouldn't come back until that mission was, was completed. Now, God wants us to be um, excited about his return. He wants us to be incredibly fired up about the fact that he's coming back. The Bible describes the return of Jesus as our blessed hope. And you know, no matter how good your life is today or how good you hope it's going to become, it doesn't even begin to compare with what life is going to be like in the kingdom of God. Just think about that for a second. Think about the promises he's made. No more death, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more crying, perfect justice, perfect righteousness, no more sin, no more sin nature. If any of y'all were ready, be ready to be rid of that old man or that old woman, you can join me. I'm, I can't wait for that to be, to be, to be true. Literally, it is going to be like heaven on earth. So he wants us to be incredibly excited about that, to be incredibly fired up about the fact that he is coming back. And to me, it's incredibly motivating to think that we may be living in the days of seeing this work completed and him return. Peter says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And I don't know about you, but I can imagine some pretty amazing things. But the scripture says that whatever I can imagine, it's gonna be even better than that. It's going to be awesome. It's gonna be, be glorious. Now, I wanna share a verse with you, the last thing, and then we'll be, we'll be done. In uh, 2 Peter chapter three, Peter has just explained to his readers that the world is going to be judged, that God is one day going to judge the world. And he asks the question, what kind of people ought you to be? And the answer he gives in chapter three, verses 11 and 12, he says, we should live holy and godly lives, that we should look forward to the day of God and that we should speed its coming. Another translation says, hasten the coming of the day of God. And you may look at that and think, well, that's kind of puzzling. How can I hasten the coming of the day of God? Doesn't God already know when the day of God's going to be? What can I do to make a difference about that? And the answer is, I think, tied to what we've been talking about here for the last half hour. If God has given us a job to do, and if Jesus has said that he's not gonna come back until we've done that, then the thing we can do to hasten his coming is to finish the job, finish the task. Now, your role in that, you know, there's all of us can pray about that. We can have a role of praying. Some of you may be in a position to give to help make that happen. Others of you may even be thinking that God's calling you to go and be a part of this sprint to the finish of the great commission. If you ask God, he will tell you what role he has in store for you. I'm so excited that you as a church are thinking about this and thinking how you can together encourage one another to find your place in this great work. But we should all be obedient to this command. We should be preparing for the Lord's return by living holy and godly lives. We should be looking for it and we should be hastening its coming. Let's pray. Father God, you're an amazing God, a God who does only things that you can do. We worship and praise your name and we thank you for this promise that you've given us over and over again that your promise, your gospel promise applies to every people group on earth. We thank you as well, Father, that you have trusted people like us with the task of finishing this. And Lord, we ask, please, that by your Holy Spirit, you would empower us to do that and that you would use him to guide us to what you would have us 
do individually and for this church. Father, I pray that. Lord, we're eager to see the return of your son. We wanna be working hard to make that happen. Could that be soon? We pray in your name, amen.